When Francisco Gonzalez makes up his mind that he wants to do something, he does it. You know, I'm not into the traditional ways of doing things. Like in his early 20s, he decided that he wanted to move to a bigger city to finally live on his own for the first time. He'd be the first person in his family to ever leave Tucson. When Francisco told his mom that he wanted to move to Los Angeles, he knew she'd try to stop him. Por supuesto que no. <laughs> she said, of course not. And I said, oh no, I'm not negotiating. I'm leaving. So in 2006, he packed up his gray sedan and drove to Los Angeles. He took over a distant relative's lease and moved into a one-bedroom apartment in a neighborhood called Boyle Heights. Boyle Heights looked and felt working class. There's a big Mexican immigrant community there. The streets were lined with vendors, ice cream trucks, and family-owned businesses. And at the center of it all is Mariachi Plaza. It's this public square where you'll sometimes hear mariachi musicians playing for crowds and picking up gigs. Francisco had moved a block away into this three-story building that kind of gives a motel vibe. The apartments wrap around an open-air parking garage on the first floor, so all the doors face each other. Many of his neighbors were mariachi musicians who had been in the building for generations. Almost every morning, Francisco would wake up to them practicing. I think music always makes you feel a little bit comfortable. You know, having the kids outside and, and feeling that this building was alive. Francisco spent a lot of time decorating his new place. He painted the walls in earth tones, installed his own light fixtures, and he swapped out the standard blinds for floor-length olive green curtains. He quickly got into a routine. He'd walk his Chihuahua Max in the morning, smile and nod at his neighbors, and then head off to work. This is like the perfect spot. I love it. Francisco would go on to live there for about a decade. The rent was affordable. At its peak, he'd pay about $900 a month, which was a bit below the average rent in L.A. at the time. He had no intention of leaving. Then, just before Christmas in 2016, he came home and noticed a piece of paper taped to his door. The building was getting a new owner. Over the next few weeks, Francisco worried about what that would mean for him. Then, in mid-January, another notice. And this one said that in three months, the rent was going to go up. Oh, and by the way, by April, you guys going to, the increase is going to be up to 80%. What? Yeah, that was my face, actually. 80% is a huge jump. Mm -hmm. His rent would now be close to $1,800. He looked around at his apartment, at the olive green curtains, at the dog bed by the door. This is where he'd spent most of his 20s. And just like that, with a single piece of paper, he had to pack up his bags. That's it. I'm done. Three more months and I'm leaving. He was devastated. Not long after, he was out walking his dog when a neighbor approached him. She'd heard of the increases and said, listen, there's this tenants' rights organization down the street and every couple weeks they hold a general meeting. She told him, If you want to come, maybe, you know, maybe they can help us. And I said, how they're going to help us? We got the letter. Everything is legal. You're like, this is what they told us. This is what we're going to do. Yeah, because you got a letter from the new corporation telling you that this is going to be the new norm. And that's it. Like I said earlier, Francisco's the kind of guy who fights for what he wants. But in this case, it didn't occur to him that that was an option, that he or any tenant could fight a rent hike. 
I'm Rima Grace, and welcome to This is Uncomfortable, a show for Marketplace about life and how money messes with it. Over the last two decades, the median rent in this country has more than doubled. In a lot of cases, that's happened steadily. But sudden big rent hikes, like the one Francisco got, are often legal, and they do happen. That means if you're a renter, displacement can feel like a natural part of life. When a landlord doubles your rent, you get out. But what happens when a group of tenants decide they don't want to leave? This week, we follow Francisco as he tries to fight back. Over the years, Francisco saw his neighborhood starting to change. Boyle Heights has always been home to tight-knit immigrant communities. But right across the river in downtown L.A., there was a big development boom happening. And you could feel the effects in the neighborhood. A metro line opened and empty warehouses were converted into high-end art galleries. You could see new people starting to trickle into the neighborhood, and it wasn't going over well. There's a fierce battle over gentrification in Boyle Heights. People worry they'll be priced out of their homes. It's a constant threat of like, you know, am I going to get displaced? Am I next? Rent for a one-bedroom is $1,500, where in the past it was around eight or $900. When Francisco got the rent increase in 2017, he figured, okay, that's it. Now I'm getting displaced. He started looking at apartments online and realized he'd never be able to afford to stay in Boyle Heights. He'd probably have to live at least 20 miles outside of Los Angeles. At the time, he was pursuing a career in acting. He usually worked as an extra on set or as a double. He was once a stand-in for Ray Romano. And on the side, he did some part-time work. But it still wasn't enough to pay this new rent. I was like, no, there's no, no way I'm, I'm going to pay. So I'm gonna th- I was thinking, I'm just going to go somewhere else. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but this is way too much. When April comes, I'm, I'm not going to have that $1,800. For weeks, Francisco heard about other neighbors getting rent increase notices. And eventually, a few of the tenants decided to go to that meeting. It was held by a tenants' rights organization called Union de Vecinos. Francisco figured it couldn't hurt. At the meeting, he sat in a circle of metal folding chairs facing his neighbors. They were all there to tackle one big question. How are we going to pay the money for the rent? Like, how are we going to do this? And at first, the general sentiment was like, well, what can we really do about this? One neighbor was like, well, if we decide to just not pay... You're going to get, you know, probably arrested. You're going to get evicted. And then another neighbor was like, well, I'm not sure. This is too complicated. People were more like, well, if it happens, happens. What about if police comes? I'm not legal. What is going to happen to me? I, I'm going to be deported. The meeting went on for hours. They voiced their concerns. And then at the end, they decided... You know, can we negotiate... There's a way that we can negotiate because we don't know them. That would be their first step, to try to negotiate increases they could actually handle. But the landlord wouldn't meet with them. So they met with the property management company that the new owner had hired. About half of the building, people from 12 apartments, showed up. And one by one, they made their plea to the property managers. One neighbor had been living there for 27 years. Another worried about their kids having to move schools. And the mariachi musicians relied on living close to the plaza for work. They have the roots here. Like, the parents used to live here in these apartments. When they move out, they stay here. So they have this connection with Boyle Heights. The tenants made it clear they've paid their rent on time for decades without any problems. 
And then they asked the property managers, can we negotiate fair rent increases? They were like, not very supportive, let's put it that way. The managers told the tenants it was up to the owners, not them. There's nothing we can do about it. If you want to stay, you're welcome. If it's not, you have to leave by the 5th date of April. That was about a week away. The property management company, by the way, didn't respond to our request for comment. The meeting lasted about an hour, and once the property management folks left, the tenants stayed behind and talked for three more hours. They were annoyed. They felt like management was brushing them off. That's when we make the decision. It was like, we're going to fight. We're going to fight because there is nothing we can do through them. So we have to fight. After that meeting, the tenant's whole demeanor had changed. We said, let's strike and see what happens. They decided to strike, to refuse to pay rent. When a group of tenants go on strike, the idea is that it could force the landlord to address something they want, something related to safety, cleanliness, or, in this case, rent. For it to even have the potential to work, the strikers basically have to function as a union. When you have more people on a strike as a group, it gets stronger. Otherwise, they're going to defeat us easily. Seven units had gotten rent increases. But in total, people from 13 units went on strike. That's about half of the building. Then when April 1st rolled around, the tenants didn't send their rent money the way they usually did through the management company's online portal. Instead, they handed their rent money, the amount they had been paying, over to the community organization Union de Vecinos. This helped assure the group that everyone would stick with the strike. They then sent a letter to the property management company basically saying, hey, we're on strike. We're not going to give you the money unless you negotiate with these tenants. The thing is, it was totally legal what their landlord did. Landlords can increase rent at their discretion as long as they give advance notice. But throughout history, tenants have pushed back on rent hikes. And while there have been mixed results, some strikes have been pretty effective in creating change. Like, during the Great Depression, thousands of tenants joined rent strikes and stopped illegal evictions, sometimes violently, by throwing rocks and bottles at police. These actions led to some of the earliest rent regulation measures and the start of public housing. Other movements have led to things many renters might take for granted, like working electricity, clean water, and year-long leases. Now, the big risk of joining a strike is getting evicted. As a renter, you have a lease or a contract with your landlord, and when you don't pay rent, that violates the contract. And it wasn't long before Francisco and his neighbors started worrying that would happen to them. We're going to do as much as we can, but in the process, we can lose something. Then, just a few weeks after refusing to pay rent, Francisco got out of his car in the parking lot one day when a stranger, this man, served him with eviction papers. It freaked Francisco out. But at the same time, he felt like... Who cares? At this point, there's nothing else we can lose. Actually, getting evicted can be a long legal process. A local housing legal aid group had offered their services pro bono. 
All seven tenants had gotten eviction papers. So while those lawyers started fighting the tenants' cases in court, Francisco and his neighbors decided to keep fighting. And that's how we started. And then we started thinking, how, what is going to be the next, the next step? Their next step was to be as loud as possible, to start a public campaign, something that would draw a lot of attention to their strike to pressure their landlord to meet with them. And the only way we're going to bring justice to this community is through organizing, is through forming tenants' unions, and through mobilizing the public. So thank you very much. They held protests and press conferences outside their building, with mediachi tenants playing their trumpets and guitars. They also did a bunch of interviews. Gonzalez says he and his neighbors have tried to speak with the landlord, but he won't hear their concerns. I don't think they care about us. And they don't care about anyone here. The new owner wants to increase the rent, and it's too much. Whatever it takes, we're going to fight. Because we're all together, and we're in this fight, and we're going to fight to the end. Their movement quickly became known as the Mariachi Rent Strike. The problem has reached critical mass as members of L.A.'s mariachi community now face the possibility of losing their longtime homes. The tenants dug through public records to find their landlord's name, B.J. Turner. He's the CEO of Dunlear Group. The company buys rundown buildings in gentrifying neighborhoods, fixes them up, raises the rent, and delivers returns to investors. In their company PowerPoints, they describe their ideal tenant as a millennial with disposable income who wears jeans and drinks coffee. To the strikers, it was clear. B.J. Turner wanted to replace them. So we want to make sure that the owner, every time he turned on the TV and watched the news, we were part of the news. And that was the point. At these protests, they'd carry signs with pictures of the landlord, pictures of him smiling directly at the camera, his blonde hair combed back, wearing a sleek gray suit. But they photoshopped it so he was holding wads of cash and had dollar signs over his eyes. And on their apartment windows, they'd hang posters with phrases like 20 years living here, 80% rent hike, and don't get to negotiate. For all the noise the tenants were making, trying to appeal to BJ, the reality is what their landlord BJ was doing with the building, trying to clear it out, doing renovations, raising the rent, it's considered normal business. Real estate developers often pick neighborhoods that are ripe for development where they can net big profits. And local governments usually support it because a new building or a renovated apartment complex can mean higher property taxes, which means more money for local schools and roads. Meanwhile, for Francisco, the strike was taking over his life. He barely saw friends, and he started passing on auditions and his regular acting gigs. So to make money, he'd drive for Uber. But he was exhausted. I was losing some sleep. Yeah. Like, my sleep wasn't that well for two months, basically, or three. And it felt like the property managers were retaliating. Francisco says they were ignoring maintenance requests and enforcing strict rules around guests and parking spaces. But at the time, the property management company denied the allegations to local media. Eventually, the landlord's lawyers did reach out to the strikers, and they basically said, OK, you want to meet? Let's meet. But this is how we're going to do it. You have to provide a proper government ID with your social security. I'm going to have security outside. Do not bring anyone else. I mean, it was crazy, everything that he was asking. The landlord also wanted to meet with the tenants one by one. 
But Francisco and his neighbors weren't willing to do it like that. They insisted on negotiating as a group. They didn't want anyone to get taken advantage of. So they decided, well, if our landlord won't meet with all of us as a group, then we'll just go to him. That's after the break. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. Francisco and his neighbors were ready to turn things up a notch. They'd found their landlord's home address and thought, okay, let's hold a protest there. B.J. Turner lived across town in a quiet, suburban-feeling neighborhood next to a golf course. Francisco and his neighbors spread the word on social media, and about 100 people showed up. They started to make their way through the neighborhood, marching towards the landlord's house, holding signs and megaphones. A bunch of reporters were there. Francisco says they wanted it to startle their landlord, to make him realize that they weren't going to back down. So we're going to save some chance. She can warm up a little because it's a little chilly. So when I do a call out, just call it back out for me. Yo, fight gentrification. They'd printed out flyers that said, do you know your neighbor is a slumlord? And they put them on car windshields, stuck them through fences, and handed them out to neighbors who'd come out of their houses looking completely baffled. Cop cars circled the block while the protesters gathered in front of B.J. Turner's manicured lawn and waited. A couple hours passed and it got dark out, but no one came in or out. They couldn't tell if he was even home. But they still chanted and passed the megaphone around. B.J. Turner and his company, Denlier Group, would you like to hear what their tenants are that they're looking for? 25 to 40-year-old millennials who work in the tech industry. But our question is to B.J., well, what about the tenants who live there? What about Gloria, whose family has been there for 27 years? And Luis and Enrique, who have been there for 22 years? Why are they less deserving of a home so that B.J. can put his ideal tenant in there? Francisco fixed his eyes on one of the front windows of the landlord's modern boxy house. He was looking for the slightest movement, a sign that someone was seeing them. But the blinds stayed drawn. In your ideal world, what did you want to have happened at this protest? Negotiate. Like, what were you imagining? Like, like... B.J. Turner came out of the door and said, you guys, tomorrow we're going to sit and talk about every issue that you have. And then we can talk about this, put everything on the table. But no, he didn't do that. Eventually, a security guard opened the door and yelled that he was going to call the cops who were already there. After another hour or so, the protesters called it a night and headed home. 
In some ways, for the tenants, it had been a really good night. It was a big turnout, and they'd gotten a lot of media coverage. But there's no response to it. There's no reaction. This guy has no reaction towards us. Were you, like, anticipating it the days after, the hours after? Yeah, because we were thinking, oh, probably someone's going to get a phone call after this. Probably he's going to be more desperate or more anxious of what, what happened, you know? The phone call didn't come. By this point, the strike had been going on for nine months. The tenants' lawyers were still working on their eviction cases. They were in court filing motion after motion to help push back the trial dates. The lawyers say their strategy was to keep delaying the process to give the tenants more time to put pressure on their landlord. And it was working. The strike was still gaining traction, especially online. People were tweeting at B.J. Turner and tagging him in posts. Eventually, he shut down his social media accounts. About a month later, supporters decided to hold another protest at his house. And this time, even though the tenants themselves weren't there, it was more confrontational. The protesters had set up camp outside of his home and stayed overnight. BJ Turner, you can't hide. We can see your greedy side. And then, just a few days after that second protest at BJ's home, the tenants got a phone call. We got a phone call from the lawyer from BJ Turner. And he said that he would like to talk to you guys. This time, though, it was different. After a year of protesting, of desperately trying to get their landlord to negotiate on their terms, it was finally happening. He said he'd meet with all of the tenants together as a group to talk. This all unfolded during Christmas time, so it was unclear when they'd actually meet. But Francisco was constantly checking his phone. I feel like I was like in a firehouse. In any moment, I have to jump. Like, I feel like they're going to call me and say, hey, Francisco, PJ Turner wants to meet us with tomorrow. When the day came, they all met at a law office and sat around this huge conference table. The neighbors and Francisco and their lawyers on one side and BJ, his business partner, and their lawyers on the other. The tenants started the same way they started their meeting with the property managers, by telling their stories. And the landlord sat and listened. He was quiet and looked a little nervous as the tenants talked for over an hour. And then he was like, oh, thank you for, you know, for sharing those thoughts and stories. But this is the business, and this is how we do it, and you have to understand that I have a family. And So he really wasn't sympathetic? Not at all. Then the landlord's lawyers presented some offers. They told the tenants, we'll pay you to move out. Or you can pay the rent increase, and we'll renovate all of your apartments. The tenants huddled, and then they told BJ, we're not going to do either of those things. We want rent increases we can afford. So the two parties kept talking, going back and forth and back and forth. The mood was tense. At one point, BJ and his lawyers bought pizza for everyone, but the tenants refused to eat it. Then after a couple hours, they finally realized they weren't going to come to an agreement. So the tenants left. But strangely, Francisco felt hopeful. We're thinking, well... He's been a month, and he never want to meet with us. And now he's meeting with mm. us. So he knows there's a pressure outside for him. It was clear that the tone had shifted. 
We talked with one of the tenant's lawyers who said that after that meeting, it seemed like BJ's lawyers were trying to settle, to not go to trial. At this point, the strike was becoming more high profile, and with the eviction cases dragging out, the legal costs were adding up. And then one day, BJ's lawyers called up the tenants and said, Okay, what do you guys want? Be specific. What do you guys want? And when they said that, that means negotiate. Let's negotiate. Finally, the door had opened. Sure, it wasn't wide open, but there was a crack. And the tenants started strategizing, meeting every day. Their lawyers would send BJ's lawyers things they wanted, like repairs, new parking rules, new machines in the laundry room, and most importantly, manageable rent increases. The tenants wanted to propose a rent increase they could all afford. So they did what they always did, sat in a circle, listening to everyone's opinions. Probably like three days it took us to get to that point. Like, okay, we can pay this amount. And that amount was $100 more a month than what they'd been paying, with a 5% cap on yearly increases after that. To Francisco's total shock, B.J. Turner's lawyers agreed to that. But then the lawyers also added a clause to the contract that said, Do not use my name again for anything. In other words, the tenants wouldn't be able to protest the landlord again. How did you feel about that? We're like, nope, you have to reward it. Mm. Because if you do something and you, we feel like we have to go and protest, no. They weren't going to give up that right. Each day for weeks, they would send out new versions of the contract and they would wait the next day for their response, then scramble to meet and talk about it and send their responses. Until finally, on Tuesday, February 15th, 2018, more than a year after they'd started fighting. He sent a letter saying, I'm ready to sign it. And then he signed it. We got it. The landlord had signed the contract. The rent strike had actually worked. Oh, it feels glorified. I feel like Oh, it feels so good. It feels so good. So, like, initially, the rent was going to go up by 80%. And in the end, you all negotiated just a $100 increase? A hundred, yeah, something like that. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So instead of paying $1,800 a month, he paid about $1,100. They'd also agreed that the tenants wouldn't have to pay back most of the rent they missed while they were on strike. And the contract guaranteed some stability. They could stay there for the next three and a half years without facing any steep increases. It was a surreal moment for Francisco. After spending almost a year fighting this battle... I feel like I was losing, 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 losing the battle. It it, it feels so good to win. To this day, Francisco and his neighbors don't really know why their landlord caved. Was it because of the bad press? Was he under a lot of pressure? Or the tenants wonder, maybe the face-to-face meeting actually worked. Maybe when he saw them and heard their stories, he softened a little and understood why they wanted to stay. That night, they celebrated. They held a big party in the parking lot. So we got the victory for mariachis and tenants to stay in their homes in Boyle Heights. Yeah! 
we wouldn't be here without B.J. Turner because eventually he came to the table. He came, he talked with the tenants, we met face to face, we sat down, we hashed things out. B.J. Turner even sent them flowers and pizza as a sort of peace offering. And this time, the tenants ate the pizza. Well, today, gentrification is not inevitable. And the fact that they're staying in their homes for three and a half years is proof of that. At the party, surrounded by his neighbors, Francisco thought back to the day he got that rent increase notice. How, right away, he assumed that he'd have to leave. The idea that they could fight back and actually win didn't just seem unlikely. At first, it seemed impossible. And that's a fair assumption, given the traditional balance of power between landlords and tenants. But the thing is, across the country, rent keeps steadily increasing and salaries aren't keeping up. And housing experts argue that it's sprouting a new movement, not just in Los Angeles, but in so many cities. Renters are banding together and organizing. We're telling them what we want, not the other way around. You can gain some power by doing this, by being organized, by working together. You can get some power, but you need to search for it. It's been three years since the strike. Francisco and most of his neighbors still live there. But there's also been an influx of new people who are living in nicer, renovated units and paying market rate. These kind of strikes are often about changing conditions at one building or saving a handful of people from eviction. And really, big structural changes sometimes begin at that level, with grassroots pressure and small wins. Like two years after Francisco and his neighbors went on strike, California enacted statewide rent control. So the limited increases they fought for, 5% max each year plus inflation, are now legally guaranteed to them and other renters. So even when their new contract with the landlord ended last summer, Francisco and his neighbors were good. They could stay in their home in Boyle Heights without the fear of getting kicked out. All right, and that is all for our episode this week. And uh, this is actually also the end of our fifth season, which is pretty wild to say out loud. But you can stay in touch with me and the team by writing to us at uncomfortable at marketplace.org. You can also find me on Twitter at Rima Khreis. And if you haven't already, you can stay posted on all things This Is Uncomfortable, including when we'll be back for our new season, by signing up for our newsletter. You can do that by heading over to marketplace.org slash comfort. Also, I want to say, as a Marketplace podcast, we are nonprofit, mission-driven, and listener-supported. And with this being the end of the year and all, we're asking you, our listeners, to donate and support us if you've got the means and if you like what we do. It makes a huge difference, and of course, it means a lot to me and the team. You can do that by going to marketplace.org slash give TIU. You can also officially buy This Is Uncomfortable merch. Right now, I am wearing a super comfy white hoodie that I'd highly recommend. You can buy that and a few other things by clicking on the link in our show notes. All right. Our team is me, Rima Khreis, Donna Tam, Megan Dietry, Haley Hirschman, Camila Kerwin, Phoebe Unterman, and Marielle Segura. Phoebe Unterman lead produced this episode. It was edited by Megan Dietry. 
Serena Chow is our intern. Tony Wagner is our digital producer. Sound design and audio engineering by Drew Jostad. And our theme music is by Wonderly. Special thanks this week to Karen Duffin, Elizabeth Blaney, Tyler Anderson, and Alex Melendrez. This is Uncomfortable is funded in part by the Cy Sims Foundation, which supports advances in education, scientific research, and the arts. All right, we'll catch y'all next year. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy.